Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When we feel unsafe, it's not just our mind telling us we're unsafe. Our body is actually, you know, activated in terms of a stress response. So someone could even hear us having this chat, read all of the books, read your, you know, work on how important and nourishing this alone time is. Yet if wired into your body is that that threat of alone, right? Or all of those beliefs of when people aren't connected to me, it means that I'm unworthy, then we can just affirm how important alone time is, though our, our body isn't gonna isn't gonna shift into that state. Hi and welcome to Alonement, the podcast about time alone and why it matters. I'm Francesca Spector host of this podcast and author of Alonement, a book based on this very show. I'm also a reformed extreme extrovert who, a few years ago, discovered the life-changing benefits of spending time alone. Each week, I interview someone I'm curious about to discover what solo time means to them. In every conversation, we celebrate the unique benefits of time spent alone regardless of your age, life stage, or relationship status. Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's alonement. This week's guest is Dr. Nicole LaPera, whom you might be even more familiar with as the holistic psychologist, the handle of her somewhat insanely popular Instagram account. She's also the author of multiple books, including her New York bestseller, How to Do the Work, and her latest title, a workbook called How to Meet Yourself. With fans including Elizabeth Day, Dr. Rongan Chatterjee and Mel Robbins, Nicole's popularity is justified, with her succinct but hard-hitting social media posts bringing therapeutic insights out of the expensive and often inaccessible clinical space and instead in front of the 9 million people who follow her on social media platforms. Nicole is as generous in sharing her personal life as she is in her clinical expertise. After coming out as gay at the age of 19, Nicole broke a further heteronormative boundary when she announced in 2021 that she had entered into a throuple with her long-term partner Lolly and another woman, Jenna. And yes, I do ask on this episode about the challenge of getting some alone time in a multi-person romantic relationship. She shares with me in this conversation how she personally learnt to heal after internalising the idea in childhood that being alone was a threatening state to be in, learning to make solitude a safe space for herself in adulthood. 
There's also some wonderful practical advice in there about learning to ground yourself during a solo date or evening in alone through noticing vital cues in your body. I'm really glad to be sharing this episode with you. And if you're already a fan, and let's face it, that's quite likely, I hope it provides yet another medium to benefit from Nicole's great advice. This season is brought to you by West Lab, the UK's number one trusted bath salts brand. Their best-selling Dead Sea bath salt range contains minerals that come from the famous waters themselves. Fun fact, it's actually a lake, not a sea, that's found in the lowest point of the earth and was the world's first spa, visited by Cleopatra herself. Dead Sea Salt is a skin hero containing a unique blend of magnesium, calcium and potassium, which is brilliant for protecting and repairing your skin barrier and managing conditions like eczema, psoriasis, acne and sensitive skin, together with soothing any aching muscles. I'm also kind of in love with magnesium for its mood balancing qualities. It's nice to think that your mind and body are being looked after while you're soaking there in the tub. West Lab Dead Sea Bath Salts are vegan, cruelty-free and suitable for the whole family. Use the code ALONEMENT15 for 15% off when you spend £10 or more. T's and C's in the show notes. I've had my own very complicated relationship with the concept of alone. Now, what alone really does mean for me is not actually alone because alone for me is in my own presence, whatever that might be in terms of whatever context I'm spending that time with me. I really come to the awareness that even when I am quote unquote without others in that alone state, that I'm actually not truly alone. I'm in my own presence at all times, no matter what it is or where it is that I am spending that time alone. Right. I mean, I'm really fascinated by the quotation marks going in around (laughs) alone at the moment. Um, (laughs) I mean, I've asked this question to God over 65 guests or something and uh, it's always it's always great to sort of get a fresh a fresh bit of punctuation in there I guess I'm curious because I know that the way that your life works I mean you know for instance right now you're touring with your latest book how to do the work and you're going to be surrounded by people quite a bit so I guess there's that need for sort of quotation marks or at least almost lowering your expectations of being totally solitary and alone all the time. But I'm also curious in your personal life, because you've been very honest about being part of a thruple. And in that relationship, I mean, I know it's a painful cliche, but is three a crowd, which means that you kind of have less physical alone time than someone might otherwise in just a twosome relationship? So I think the one of the reasons why I was putting up the quotes around alone, and even to speak to your point, here I am, whether I'm living in my personal life with two other humans, um, to other partners or whether I'm in an experience like this touring with a lot of people objectively, objectively around me, I can think back to a time, actually all of the time upwards until I reached my thirties, really, when I began to dive in, do a lot of my own healing work where I lived in major cities. I lived in New York city and talk about being alone and how impossible that was though. I found myself consistently for as long as I can remember, I don't know, kind of the saying of being alone in a crowded room. It didn't actually matter who was around me or how many who's. And, you know, before I'm in the current relationship that I'm in, I was always I'm a serial monogamous, always in a partnership. Yet again, as long as I can remember, there was a hole inside. I never really felt truly connected to the others around me. And so my kind of quotation of alone, 
um, is that I really had come to the realization and healed that wound so much so that not only connecting with myself in those solitary moments, which of course in occasions like this are more fewer and far between, and you know, I'll get into my relationship in just a second, um, really begins though with me being in my own presence first so that I can even feel connected to other people. Then yes, to speak to your point, I live and work with two other humans, which means that in terms of the objective reality of being physically alone, um, those are fewer and far between those instances, though learning how to not only carve out time and space for me to be within my own presence and absence of others so that I can kind of reground within my own energy is, I think, something that the three of us keep top of mind at all times. And of course, that might mean leaving the home or taking each of ourselves on what we call solo dates. So that we can actually carve out that time just because of the proximity of not one, but two people. I love that because I think that I I write this in my book because I have a chapter on relationships. And I say, I think that the thing that's really important is just having alonement or whatever you want to call it, solo dates, whatever, as a value. Because if it's not a value, then someone leaving means rejection, I suppose. It can quite easily be interpreted as such. I'm shaking my head very much so because for the reason why I felt so alone in a crowded room was lacking that emotional connection from my mom in particular in childhood, but really any of the caregivers, you know, around me, I began to interpret. And in addition to the fact I should mention that one of the major ways my mom kind of dealt with anger when she was upset by something was to shut down, to give me the silent treatment or to ice me, to actually remove her presence. So I began to learn to speak to your point very early on that alone was actually a very threatening state, especially with when I was in that dependent state of childhood where I needed those caregivers. So without her being emotionally connected to me more consistently, and especially in moments of upset, I began to associate aloneness right with a threat to myself. I began to wrap all of these kind of beliefs around all of the factors that would contribute to someone not wanting to be with me if I upset them, if there was aspects of myself that you know they wouldn't you know, be accepting of, then I would begin to suppress all of those. And in moments in my relationships, anytime someone pulled away or needed space for themselves, very naturally, I did not experience that as nourishing or replenishing. I actually was in quite a hypervigilant or threatened state always just worried and seeking that next point of connection so that I could convince myself that I was worthy of that relationship. So it took me kind of reconnecting with me to be able to actually be able to experience the nourishing aspects of aloneness, like you're saying, to be able to pull away, whether inside or outside of the home, and take that as a time and space to be grounded in our own presence, as opposed to me experiencing that as a lack of safety. It's really interesting because obviously you know, relationships make us then address all these childhood beliefs and you know the way that we're conditioned. And it, but it's interesting to hear that specifically focused on how alone time was sort of betrayed for you when you were younger. I wonder for anyone in that position who has had alone time from childhood illustrated as a sort of threat and something that has that insidious connotation. Is there a specific path that you'd suggest going down in order to sort of rebrand it for oneself? Yeah. And I think the the way most pathways of healing, you're going to always hear me 
talk about the body. Because um, when we feel unsafe, it's not just our mind telling us we're unsafe. Our body is actually, you know, activated in terms of a stress response. So someone could even hear us having this chat, read all of the books, read your, you know, work on how important and nourishing this alone time is. Yet if wired into your body is that, that threat of alone, right? Or all of those beliefs of when people aren't connected to me, it means that I'm unworthy. Then we can just affirm how important alone time is. Though our, our body isn't gonna isn't gonna shift into that state, so understanding when our body is feeling threatened, when alone time does make our heart race, or those you know narratives run through our mind of all of the reasons why you know the person is separated from us because we're not loved, they don't want to be with us anymore. That then means not only tuning into those mental narratives, it means tuning into my escalating heart rate, my quickening breath, the tension in my muscles, which is exactly how I used to feel. I mean, if I tell you, I used to walk around with my cell phone, you know, plastered to me. If I sent a text and I would watch the minutes click by that I wasn't getting the response, hypervigilant, picking up the text, always looking for that response as my tension in my body grew, as my heart rate escalated, I could tell myself, calm down. You know, you don't know what this person is doing. They might be having a very legitimate reason for taking space or for not responding to you in that moment. Yet my body was telling my mind something completely different with that escalating heart rate and the tension in my muscles. My body was almost overriding the facts that my mind might be serving it and saying, no, this is threatening. You're, you are hypervigilant to your phone waiting for the response because you need that to feel safe. So for me, my journey and continues to really mean incorporating the body, noticing when I'm shifting into that threatened state of aloneness and being able to make different choices now to calm my body, to ground my body so that I can actually experience the peace of aloneness as opposed to the activation or the threatened state that my body would continue to send my mind. Mm, that's really interesting, but it starts with the noticing the body. And I mean, it speaks to your Instagram handle. It speaks to your outlook that you are talking about that general holistic approach rather than I think it can be tempting to get very heady and, and try and go deeper and deeper into one's childhood without realizing those triggers. Yeah. And I think it can be really um, frustrating for a lot of us is, you know, we do dive down into maybe what caused it, or we do come up with the affirmation to say, or the piece of information with why alone time is so important for us. Yet, if it doesn't begin to map onto how we experience it in our body, then we're never going to believe that it is actually a nourishing experience because so much of our beliefs are grounded not only in the repeated mental ways that we make sense, the stories that we create, the interpretations that we create, our beliefs are really grounded in how we experience, so for in the context of this conversation, alone. So if in childhood alone did feel as unsafe as it did for a lot of us, either because our parents were physically absent or emotionally absent, as was the case in, in my childhood, that doesn't, that will override, that will, that will be what creates that belief that alone is unsafe. I can almost imagine that being practically applied even during a solo date or a solo evening. I mean, we've all had those that have sort of spiraled into something that feels unhealthy <laughs> and anxiety and this and that. But I suppose as much as it doesn't sound like the most appealing evening in by oneself, just <laughs> sitting and noticing Am I getting anxious? Am I sitting here in this hunched posture? Am, you know, how is this showing up in my body? And how that might then impact on your 
courses of action or whether you're doing the healthy things for yourself or not. Yeah. And I can actually think back um, to the first kind of alone date I ever had, which was much earlier on in, in my journey when I was still very kind of wired in that threat-based relationship uh, with aloneness. And it was in my early 20s and I was away with the partner I had at the time and we were away for a wedding that she was a part of. So the large majority of the time that we were away, she had wedding engagements to tend to. And there was this one particular day and we were in Key West in Florida and it was this gorgeous place and it was this cute little island. So I was really kind of bound to the hotel room, but then this whole day in front of me, because I was afraid of being alone, I thought, okay, Nicole, you can go out and, you know, set some time, go explore the island, take yourself, you know, to lunch or whatever it may be. And I did that, though the whole time I was doing that, I didn't feel safe and comfortable. I was connected to my phone. I probably ended up or I did end up at a restaurant having some drinks to kind of try and manage the way I was feeling, which was so unsafe and uncomfortable with that alone time that now my alone time, of course, looks very different. Now I can be in my aloneness, whether it's in the home or outside of the home, and I don't have to distract myself away from that discomfort because I don't necessarily feel that discomfort as much anymore. I feel much more calm and grounded in my own presence. I do think, so the book that you've brought out is a practical workbook called How to Meet Yourself. It's almost spelling out the obvious, but I think we constantly need to do that with alone time. You you say in the introduction that this might involve a sort of 10 to 15 minute period of time alone in your own space while completing the exercises in this workbook, which to begin with starts like a really nice way to sort of almost rebrand alone time to yourself and, mm-hmm. and, and be able to give yourself something to do in those first solo dates. I sometimes suspect that even if someone is going through therapy and taking those, you know, those formal sort of sessions, I think that that alone time might be neglected alongside it. I don't know if it's generally something that's recommended by a therapist as something you need to take. I think, you know, societally, you know, and whatever the circumstances of our lives are, make it particularly difficult, even if we have been given the information that alone time is important. Many of us, you know, live in cities. It's crowded. We don't actually have the physical space to be alone. We might be living in a home with other people, with other generations. You know, we might be working many jobs. So I think societally, as it changes and continues to change, I think a lot about our evolution and kind of where we've come from as humans and living in groups of people, of course, though living much more spread out, not having all of this stimulation, not quite literally living on top of each other, where even if you're alone, you hear the neighbors upstairs. So are you really alone because you hear their argument? I think that has contributed to just the objective difficulty that many of us experience in terms of carving out those moments alone, especially, of course, if we have children who are dependent on us. We might not have those moments throughout our day to physically be alone. And then, of course, there's the psychological aspect of aloneness. And the reason why even in the workbook, you know, I recommend what I, I hope to be considered a, a short amount of time. I'm not saying go on a solo day or vacation right by yourself. I'm saying maybe even carve out five minutes for that alone self-reflection because the many of us who didn't have that safety in childhood, who didn't have that connection in childhood will even experience that little amount of time being alone with ourselves, with our thoughts, 
with our emotions as incredibly uncomfortable because I speak a lot, um, especially my first book, How to Do the Work, of the power of the subconscious mind, specifically our desire to be in our habits because our habits are familiar. So if you're like me and, you know, in childhood alone didn't feel good, alone meant something bad happened, alone meant that threat of safety, then you're going to continue to try to not be alone, even if you logically have all the reasons why alone is good for you. So again, it's about the psychological, you know, kind of aspect of learning how to move further and further into that which is uncomfortable, because that's how we have to create change. We have to begin to make those new choices, which will automatically challenge that subconscious pull back into that familiar habit zone. So even something as small as five minutes of self-reflection for someone who's been always distracted away with their attention on other people, keeping themselves endlessly busy, which for a lot of us is a protection. Because when I hit pause, what am I left with? The racing thoughts in my mind, which are often very uncomfortable, the just uncomfortable feelings in my body, all of the reason why to keep myself and my attention distracted elsewhere. So even five minutes of that suggested alone time in practice, I imagine for many picking up the workbook will feel a bit overwhelming, will challenge that subconscious preference or their subconscious's preference to be in that familiar state of distraction. So, because quite often when we talk about therapy or you know, healing or that that broad array of things, traditionally it's been in therapists' offices. There's this sense that to heal, to work on yourself, you need to go to therapy and you need to pay what is increasingly a, a loss of money. Um, can therapy sometimes just be the fulfilling that gap of having someone there while we make these really scary revelations that might be too scary to make alone. I think therapy and, you know, any supportive environment or relationship that we have access to can absolutely, you know, be a a place to, to create a new relationship with perhaps, you know, alone, though I often think too of, you know, what not only happens inside the therapy room in terms of, so back to my even example of being alone in a crowded room, right? being in relationship with people yet still feeling alone. So if I go to therapy, right, and I'm not actually sharing of myself, which is the case for a lot of us that go to therapy, even if we're in this place where it's supposedly safe and we're allowed to share whatever it is that we you know, feel or think and feel, if we're not actually connected to what it is that we think or we feel, right, we're not actually sharing of ourselves in that room. So we could leave this very supportive space not actually feeling fully connected to our therapist because we'll continue to use those same, you know, adaptations or tools that we learned in childhood. And if in childhood, you know, we learn to suppress or not share our actual thoughts or perspectives for whatever reason or our actual feelings and became so disconnected as I did, then what we're sharing, even in that safe supportive space, not actually, may not actually be truly us. So we could walk out of that therapy experience and even begin to shame ourselves because we're not feeling the benefit of that connected relationship. Because to truly connect with someone else, we have to be able to be honest about what we think, be honest about what we feel, which means we need to be connected to what our thoughts and feelings are. And I'm sharing that on the heels of having a really pivotal realization. And I had been in therapy you know, for many years in my early 20s. And it was around the same time where I was talking to a friend because I was feeling stressed out 
about a decision I had to make around spending, you know, time for any given occasion. I forget what it was, a holiday coming up. And everyone in my life was telling me kind of what they wanted or needed of me, which of course were two different things for that particular day. And long story short, I was talking to a friend and I was, you know, needing support, looking to them for support and sharing, you know, my, my conflict. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And very calmly, once I told them what my mom needed, my partner needed, my sister wanted of me, they very calmly looked at me and said, what do you want, Nicole? What, how do you want to spend this Saturday, for instance? And I couldn't answer. And I think that applies to a lot of us. I couldn't answer because I had spent little to no time actually focusing or exploring what I wanted, right? So chances are, and I know that was the case when I was in even that therapy session, I wasn't necessarily even able to share what my true thoughts or perspectives were, let alone my feelings. Because by that point, I was so disconnected from my body as a form of protection from the overwhelming stress that I had experienced in childhood that I wasn't able, even as a clinical psychologist, right, who's supposedly able to understand emotions and talk to other people about them, you would have heard very little from me in terms of my authentic feelings to share. So inside of even trusted relationships, I think, Few of us are able to fully express ourselves. We're even worried with therapists think. I've had clients even tell me, oh my gosh, I didn't want to say this to you. I'm afraid of what you're going to think of me. So we can leave therapy rooms feeling just as alone. And then of course, once we're out of the therapy room, which is really what sent me on this journey of transitioning the way I practice, all of our old habits are there. So even if we're being authentic and ourselves to connect with this other human in that protected space, I might then leave and continue to be disconnected from myself or fearful of alone time. 
in my other relationships. Would you suggest that there's then almost a danger there of, I suppose, investing the money in therapy, which is no small feat and for, for anyone really, and, and almost using it as a sort of ticking off of one's you know emotional or sort of therapeutic journey, you know, that's done for the week, uh, then off on my way. And, and I, I suppose the, the, as something that's become increasingly normalized and we've, we've removed the stigma, but we, it's also almost become like a, I don't know, a status symbol to be able to pay for therapy in the first place. Do you think there's a danger of falling into that trap of thinking we're done because we have our hourly sesh? I think the, the same applies to, I mean, now we have access to endless self-help books, endless information on the internet, endless, you know, weekend retreat type opportunities. And, you know, I, I think the same applies. Some of us kind of go into that just checking off the boxes model, and then we return right back to those old habits. So again, it, it really is about learning the tools, whatever context it is. If you do have access to the resources or even the availability of helping professionals, you know, making sure that you're translating. So I'll always talk about change in those two steps, becoming aware of kind of conscious to what habits and patterns are creating our current circumstances so that we can make new choices. So regardless of if we do have access to that one hour a week or even you know, those, those workshops that could be very beneficial, it then means applying those tools or integrating those new choices more consistently than not all of the time. And to speak to your point, a lot of us do check the box kind of, oh, I did that there. And now before I know it, I'm right back into those old habits in my relationship or in my daily life. So then we don't actually retain the benefit of those new tools that we're learning in, in those environments. Sure. So it's about integrating both. One unfortunately can't work in isolation. As lovely as it would be to think, I suppose that, like going to the gym, it was all done for the day. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of us, again, too, reading books, you know, kind of checking the boxes and even self help can make us feel like, you know, we're in action doing all of these things. Yet, if we're not, we can use even those, I guess, kind of tools as a, as a distraction, reading from book to book to book without pausing to integrate what I've learned in each book. I'm still as what I call it in my thinking mind. I'm still thinking about the concepts in the book as opposed to making those choices or integrating the concepts in a book. And for a lot of us, it can confuse us because we think we're doing things that are a benefit because of the nature of the content that we're reading in that book after book, yet we're still locked in our thoughts, in our thinking mind. And really, again, going back to the holistic concept to create true change, we have to begin to act on the feelings that are stored in our body, which for a lot of us are so uncomfortable that it is preferable to just pick up the next book once we close the other one. Because if I were to hit pause and begin to integrate those new concepts or tools that I learned in this book or in this therapy session, then I'm met with that discomfort in my, in my body. Right. And that pull back to the familiar way that I've dealt with it. Now though, I'm applying a, you know, a healthy label. Well, I'm just, I'm reading something good and healthy for me, yet I'm still distracted in a sense. Mm, that's so fascinating. So you can almost get addicted to the theory without doing the practice. Yes. 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 You've mentioned how accessible a lot of self-help content is now. And on the one hand, that is brilliant. Obviously, it's great that we're 
not doing the particularly in the UK the stiff upper lip thing of just not <laughs> ever talking about our emotions I don't know how well that worked out and I'd like particularly I mean I, I really enjoy the threads that you post on Twitter but I do you know I do also see examples of social media self-help content that I don't like that feels dogmatic that uses a lot of what I think of as thought-stopping words you know uh, triggering toxic this or that in a sort of not particularly helpful way I wonder what you think should there be a barrier to entry here do you do you think that you know there should be almost a certain qualification that you need or I know that actually currently having this recent conversation around verification on Twitter because <laughs> Elon Musk is threatening to take away all of our blue ticks. Increasingly, <laughs> as, as we're bringing self-help to social media, do you think that there needs to be a source of regulation of that as well? I think social media um, is offers us two things. Another social landscape, quite literally, another place to interact with not only other humans, you know, that is ever accessible 20 four hours a day, it also brings us an ever accessible way to interact with information. So describing that in that way, I see social media as any other kind of tool. It's a very neutral thing that really kind of hangs on whether, you know, conversation, whether it's healthy or unhealthy. Again, I don't love using those designators, but for this conversation really is how is it being utilized, right? Is it being utilized by someone who's you know, conscious and, and present to all of the different people who might be giving information, people you might be interacting with and, you know, giving that person the, co- or does that person, I should say, have the confidence to use their own discretion to take, you know, what resonates for them and to leave the rest. And, or are we someone who is using social media in a much more unboundaried way with, you know, much more problematic impact on ourselves and just taking whatever it is that anyone says to be true because they say it. And, you know, that I think, you know, can apply. And now it's just ever accessible. But that was always the case. Anyone could have picked up any book, you know, that obviously got published and still have access to information. So social media is information. Social media is aspect or is is interaction with other humans. And I think to answer your question in terms of do we need kind of an entry access point or a certain gatekeeping, you know, I think that very few of us, even as adults, have the ability to use or to be able to regulate our own stress and to be able to find our way through that nuance and apply the things that work for us and leave the rest. Because so many of us have learned from our past experiences, you know, from messaging even in some of our cultures to just defer to what other people are saying and doing. And if whether or not before it was social media or not, chances are we were doing that in our communities, right? Going to the doctor and because they had, you know, a doctor's plaque up listening to whatever it is that they had to say. And this isn't to discredit doctors, though doctors even are trained in many different theories. Not all doctors, you know, can and what they say might apply to our own self. So when I even going back to the concept of self-healing, you know, when I talk about self-healing, it's not to remove this self from all of these other relationships or information that could be helpful to us. It's to be a part of the conversation because something that I hear very commonly, especially in the medical field is women in particular who have shared, you know, what their own experience of their bodies are and their symptoms and actually been discredited 
um, by helping professionals, often well-meaning based on their limited knowledge and education or how they came, you know, to theorize about this certain, you know, distribution of symptoms overriding the person who's experiencing those symptoms every day, who has that inner knowing. So I apply that same sort of rationale to the social media landscape when we're talking about mental wellness and all the information out there. I think the goal isn't to block access. I think the goal is to empower the the receiver of the content, you know, the person who's using this information and and allow them to develop that discretion, allow them to develop that self-trust, allow them to have that space, even, you know, this beautiful concept of alonement to drop into themselves and take the parts that might apply to their journey and learn how to, you, you know, not or leave the parts, create boundaries around those pieces of information that maybe are activating or aren't helpful for them. Again, I don't think it's changing the external. I don't think that's the route. I think more the route we need to take is empowering the consumer. That was the word I was looking for earlier. Then I go to empowering the consumer of the information to create the safety that they need and the self-knowledge and the self-awareness so that they can find their way through that information that's helpful. You feel that by having that information available that might previously have been inaccessible, you know, reserved for the therapist's pouch or the doctor's office, it will allow the consumer to see the diamonds among the rubble. I think having that ever available will allow, yes, ultimately over time, the person, because again, it's a process to be able to first even maybe determine that they are someone like I once was who just deferred, right? If you said it, if my friends were doing it, if it helped other people, just assuming then that it would help me. So really kind of going through my own process of reconnecting with myself, tuning into what I wanted or what I needed, tuning into how I experienced certain information allowed me to develop that discretion. So having it available, I think is just, again, the objective, you know, reality of information out there and then empowering kind of the human because, the you know, from the moment I signed online and created this Instagram account, I was aware of how, how global, how international the, the community was, you know, people that were liking the post or, you know, hitting follow weren't just from where I was living at the time in Philadelphia. They were quite literally from around the world. And I became very aware very quickly that, you know, resources aren't available. Information is monitored in other countries in a way that we don't, at least yet, experience in the United States. And so without access to even the possibility of knowledge, you know, these people are really, you know, were, could possibly not then have access to life-changing information. So giving and increasing these conversations and living in, in countries and communities where there might not be a mental health professional, or there might be restrictions on the certain amount of information that people have access to, in my opinion, again, really cuts off that first step of change, which is awareness. If I don't know the new information, if I don't know the tools that I could use to make sense of myself, even create that possibility of that new choice, then I'm not ever going to be able to take that step forward into making those new choices. So continuing to put this information out there, again, for me, became a a priority, you know, regardless if we talk about what system created what, you know, I do understand that clinicians, even ourselves in the West, we're trained, you know, by a very limited system, um, again, in one way that, you know, reduces the amount of information, much of which I talk about now was not taught to me 
in that system that I was even trained in myself. So I'm infinitely grateful because the information that I now have access to quite literally allowed me to change my life. So again, I'm always going to be a proponent of allowing these conversations. And also at the same time, though, making sure that we're empowering those humans with that discretion, with the possibility of making those just making those discretionary choices in the future. And what would be your practical advice for someone who does become a little bit addicted to the self-help that you can find on the internet as, as, as brilliantly presented as it all is? How would you almost suggest imposing boundaries on oneself to be able to then get off and to use your phrase, do the work themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So again, back to the, I'm going to keep this framework of the, you know, consciousness step. The first step before we can make choices in terms of new boundaries, whether it's self-help or even the more problematic nature of online content is awareness, really attuning and paying attention to. And I think this conversation applies beautifully to this concept of alonement. Because some of us might be objectively alone, say at night, you know, our partner's out or we live alone and there's no one around. Yeah, we're not really alone because we're either scrolling the self-help content on the internet or, you know, down the stressful spirals that the internet can provide. So the first step will always be become conscious to not only how and when are you making the choices to pick up your phone and engage with that content, though also how that makes you feel, right? Am I endlessly scrolling something and I feel more stressed out because now I read 10 self-help books and I have 10 new things to do? Or am I scrolling, you know, stressful? content on the on the internet or engaging in stressful interactions with other humans. And while I'm not alone, I might put my phone down at night if I'm even able to put my phone down at night and feel worse. I feel less than because look at all these beautiful things people are doing to create change in their life and I'm not doing them. Or I just had stressful engagement in content or stressful interaction with other people. So becoming conscious really means paying attention to how am I using this tool of social media? When am I using? When am I most likely to pick up and scroll? Whatever the content is, and how is it making me feel? Which means dropping into my body, either throughout the use, you know, while I'm scrolling, and ask myself, do I do I want to continue on this, you know, path that I'm on, or do I want to make a choice to put my phone down? And how do I feel then once I've completed my scroll? Do I feel enriched? Do I feel hopeful and buoyant, you know, and expansive and excited? By what I've read, or do I feel heavy and bogged down and more stressed out and more constricted as a result? And I use this process even to this day because much of my work is on either a phone or a computer. So I can be endlessly distracted with something now that I'm very passionate about. I love what I do. I love thinking and talking about these concepts, yet I'll catch myself picking up my phone mid scroll because I'm alone or there's no stimulation around or my partners are on their phones doing something else. So I'm going to go into that distraction mode and I'll even ask myself, do I want to be like mid scroll? Like, am I, am I engaged with what I'm doing? Am I feeling connected? Am I getting something enriching? And more often than not, my answer to myself is no, I'm mindlessly scrolling. I don't really care what I'm scrolling. And I do try to put boundaries and curate my feed so that I'm reading, you know, what I think is more or less expanding information. But there are some moments where I don't actually want to be consuming information. I want to be in my own presence, with my own thoughts. So that even applies to healthy information I could be consuming. I'm very stimulated by a lot of the accounts I follow, a lot of the information that I can you know, find my way to access to. But 
am I in that? Can, do I want to be consuming anything at all right now? Or do I just want to allow myself to be in my own energy? And in that moment, then I can give myself that possibility. Once I become conscious to how am I experiencing this particular scroll, I can make that choice to put my phone down and then to just sit and be with myself in my own alone energy. So I think that applies. We can become conscious to how we're using social media, how it's making us feel. And if it's not making us feel, even like my story, it could make me feel expansive, though not in every moment. There's some moments where I don't want to take in any more content. I just want to be with myself. And then in those moments, you can make different decisions. And finally, we're coming to the end of the episode, but I would love to ask you the question that I ask every guest, uh, which is, what's your favorite form of alonement? So now my favorite form of alonement can really be in any moment. It can be those moments where my partners are you know, doing work or their attention and presence is somewhere else. And I'm not actually physically you know, alone. I'm doing my own thing, which for me was very difficult you know, kind of habit to break of always thinking I should be doing what other people are doing. If they're working, well, I should be working. So now I can find beautiful alone moments throughout my day, even when there's physically other people present, allowing myself to meet my own need, which is maybe not to work in that moment, to take myself out into the sunshine. And always, anytime I'm in nature, anytime I'm connected to the earth, whether it's in my backyard or on a hike, that is for me the most nourishing alone time because not only am I connected to myself and my physical body, not distracted by what someone else is doing, comparing myself to them. I'm in my own energy in that moment. I'm connected to the earth. And for me, you know, I truly believe that we are all interconnected beings, not only to other people, but to this beautiful natural earth that we live in. And when I'm in the sunshine, when my, you know, feet are on the earth and I'm grounding, I'm actually feeling the energy of the earth or I'm on a hike and I'm able to expansively, you know, look out at the horizon instead of other houses. Then I feel not only connected to myself, I feel connected to the earth around me. And for me, that's the most nourishing when I come home from those moments or I return inside from those moments. I feel replenished. I feel more not only grounded, I feel like I have more access to my energy back that I can then use to create or to connect with another person. Wow, that sounds hippie in the best possible way <laughs> that being out in nature all the time and and remind me so you are you're based in la that's where you're no is. now i'm i'm currently based in arizona, arizona. Um, in scottsdale arizona which is right outside of phoenix um la yeah la felt very i was living in venice beach which was much more city like i felt very constricted energetically there was too many people too much you know kind of stimulation all the time so you know, now living in Arizona, which is interesting. I've been able to, I think, find a new level of my own grounded presence of my own alonement now that I'm in the environment that allows me to have more access to that in LA with helicopters overhead and, you know, uh, motorcycles running down the road in front of me and hearing people, you know, all of the time didn't actually allow me to have that protected space of alone time. And now living in Arizona with less of that stimulation actually allows me to have more moments of my own alone presence, which is really beautiful. And I think has kind of entered me into a deeper level um, of healing my own relationship with alone, alone and myself. That's interesting. I think you're slightly demolishing the, uh, the LA dream there and making everyone <laughs> want to move to Arizona. 
Uh, and on the subject of nature, am I right in thinking I read in the Wall Street Journal that you spend a lot of time naked in your back garden? That's when you when you free uh, in the private garden. I do, which is so crazy. You know, growing up in a city, not having any sort of kind of protected space, having um, those moments and that kind of private nature of my backyard. Now I have had many moments now where I can lay full body naked in the sun, or I have a full plunge. Um, and I can go in there naked um, and just allowing myself to be present in my own physical body is a continued aspect of my journey because I, I think like many of us carry a lot of shame even around my physical body, my nakedness, um, but practicing, you know, being naked in the privacy of my own home and even healing my own relationship with my naked body is very much a part of my journey because I, like many, carry a lot of body-based shame um, where, you know, being naked, being on a naked beach is, you know, for a long time would have been my my nightmare because invisibility of other people. So the private nature of my backyard allows me not only to the benefit of sun on my all of my skin, but is continuing to allow me to really heal my own relationship with my physical body. I hope you enjoyed spending the last 45 minutes or so with Nicole and I. I know this will resonate so much with you in different ways. And as ever, I'd love to hear what you think via the social media links in the show notes. Or why not leaving a lovely five-star review on your podcast distributor of choice. Stay in touch with the show by subscribing to my Substack email newsletter at francescaspector.substack.com. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. 